Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. You guys a little lively today? Okay, awesome. We're going to have some fun. My name is Brent. Um, I do the youth here at this campus. I teach them on Sunday mornings upstairs. So if you are youth, we've got Trevor's up there teaching this morning. So if there's any teenagers in here, 7th through 12th grade, free to go. Go ahead and go upstairs. That would be wonderful. Um, we are going through the book of Mark this morning. So um, I, this is my part-time gig, which is nice. I work at the YCC Family Crisis Center in downtown Ogden. Um, it's a domestic violence shelter, but what I normally do there is I get to go to all the schools and talk to all the students about healthy relationships and safe dating and things like that, which is super fun. Uh, Fred helps us out with that, which is great. And uh, so, but you know what? Sometimes it's good just to talk to adults, you know? Not hearing fart and burp jokes and things like that is wonderful. So... Some of you do that, I know. But it's good. So about 10 years ago, um, my wife and I moved from Roy um, with our kids to Hooper. I know I say it weird, but I'm from California. Um, we moved to Hooper, and uh, we have a two-car garage, and I have a lot of stuff. Like, I have, like, a lot of camping gear, sports gear, like, rock climbing gear. My wife says I have too much stuff, but I have a lot of stuff. And so um, a couple years after we moved in, my father-in-law and my mom came to visit, and he's amazing. So we built these two big, tall um, shelves on both sides of our garage to keep all my stuff. And it was like um, these, we made it so it would fit, like, straight in, like a five-gallon tote but on each side. So it kind of shrank, narrowed our garage a little bit. But at the time, it wasn't a big deal because my wife and I had kind of like smallish cars. Um, years went by. Our kids got older. They got their license, unfortunately. And then they got cars and started driving. And, um, and so my son and I were voluntold that we had to park out of the garage on the street so the girls can park in the garage. And that went on for a while, winter after winter after winter. Um, and then my son ended up moving and going to the U, so he lives on Salt Lake. This year, my daughter uh, moved out and is living in the dorms at uh, Weber State. And so I'm like, yes, I get my parking spot back in the garage. This time, though, I have a GMC Envoy, which is a, largest ve a larger vehicle. So I literally have to pull into my garage now, like, like, it doesn't fit. Like, I pull into my garage, and either I park too close to my wife's car, and we're, like, folding our mirrors in and, like, going like this between them, or I'm pulling too far over to the shelf side, and I'm, like, hitting my door, and I have to, like, scrunch in there, and you like to, to kind of get out. Or if I park too court, I can't even open my door. I'm literally, like, climbing over my middle console into my passenger seat out the side door without hitting the door on my wife's car, it just is not working at all. I mean, it's better than outside, but my car does not fit in the garage, unfortunately. So all that to say is if you guys have been following us in this series of Mark and talking about the life of Jesus, we are seeing that Jesus does not fit into like, especially into the religious system of his day with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, it's, it's not working. And people are trying to put Jesus in a box all the time. People are still trying to put Jesus in a box today. But Jesus does not fit in anybody's box, like, at all. And I think that's a really good thing. And so religious leaders have created a lot of, have added a lot of laws and a lot of things to God's Old Testament law. But they really didn't understand that in order to change the law or to, to fit Jesus in the law, they would have to change the whole system and really the heart of the system. And so that's what we're kind of talking about today is the heart of religion, not just religion itself. 
And so this morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus didn't fit with what the religious leaders thought he should fit into, and because the heart of the religion was really missing. So we're going to talk about how to put that heart back. So last week, in Mark 2, 14 through 17, we talked about what Jesus was doing that was not considered religious. He, in other words, he was hanging out with a lot of tax collectors and sinners, you know. It's like, Jesus, why are you hanging out with all these bad people? And Jesus came to really heal the sick, not the healthy. But today, in these verses, we're going to talk about what Jesus wasn't doing that was considered religious. So, Jesus couldn't please anybody at this point, and that's a good thing. And so, that's what we're talking about today. So, the religious system was created in the Old Testament did have a purpose because it pointed to something coming that was far better than, than all the religious rules, and that was Jesus. And so it's something that we couldn't contain in the religious system, that we couldn't contain Jesus in it, and it shouldn't have been added to, but we're going to see here in Mark chapter 2 what all the religious police, we're going to call them religious police, had to say. So once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? And so fasting was one of these practices that was kind of built into the religious system of that day, of Jesus' day, and it became more like a duty. Um, these religious leaders or these religious police people couldn't understand why, if Jesus, who was he claimed to be, was such a religious person, why was he not following their rules? That's what they couldn't get a grasp on or couldn't get a hold on. Especially since, you know, they're kind of bringing up the thing about fasting here. And so as we're talking about fasting, since they brought up fasting, just to give you guys an idea of what fasting was like at that time, um, it was not actually required in the Old Testament to fast. In Leviticus 16.29, it talks about the Day of Atonement, and it talks about humbling yourself on the Day of Atonement. But as years went by, the Judaizers and the Pharisees kind of added fasting along with humbling yourself. They kind of paired those two things up. And it wasn't fasting that it wasn't really included in the text, but those people, those Pharisees, kind of added to it and something that it shouldn't have been added to. And so the Pharisees, even this day, as Jesus, you know, the day that they're complaining about Jesus and questioning Jesus, they're fasting twice a week. So the Pharisees wasn't required in the Old Testament, wasn't required in the law, but they added this, this thing where they were fasting twice a week. They made it a ritual, and they kind of made it an outside form of holiness. And what it wasn't supposed to be, instead, what it was supposed to be was something that, you know, was your heart and your motivation. And so, but they really kind of made it a show and kind of made it a spectacle. And so, I'll show you this. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, and when you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do, or the Pharisees. For they try to look miserable so people would admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that this is the only reward that we'll ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. So you've got these Pharisees fasting twice a week, going on the street corners, making themselves look all weak and everything and messing up their hair or whatever, just so they make sure that people noticed how holy they were. Made sure people noticed that they were fasting and they were spiritual, right, and all those different things. It was all a big show. It wasn't from the heart. 
It's like if you go to the gym and you're like, you know, you're working out, you know, and somebody walks by and you're like, 98, 99, 100, you know, and you're really on two. You know, so it's like things like that. You're like, oh, like nobody walks like this. But after you walk out of the gym, you walk like this, you know, and it's just a big show, right? It's like that type of thing. And so that's what the Pharisees were doing. And so I'll tell you, the definition of fasting is really denying the flesh to strengthen the spirit. That's what fasting should be, and that's what fasting should be today. We're denying our flesh in order to focus on our relationship with God. When I fast, whenever I get hungry, those hunger pains, and my stomach growls, it reminds me to pray. It's kind of like that thing where you're sacrificing one thing in order to remind yourself to do another. And so I'll tell you, I'll give you a few things here. Fasting was intended to reflect a declaration that something is wrong. And so it could be something wrong in your life. There could be sin in your life. It could be bad habits that you have that you're fasting in order to like focus on God to get rid of those bad habits. It's a spiritual discipline. It's also a sign of grief and mourning sometimes. John the Baptist's disciples were fasting, but they were fasting because John was in prison. And so it was very, fasting could be very, very circumstantial. You know, it could be based on circumstance. It's also kind of a drawing to the presence of God. And so fasting can be used to humble yourself in God's presence. It could be a sign of repentance. It could be used to like asking your really, really seeking God for forgiveness in your life. John the Baptist disciples fasted all the time to show repentance. That's a heart thing. And so, and then the third thing, it was really a dependence on God, you know, for healing. It's really, um, you know, if there's a drought, you can fast and pray for rain to come. I don't know how many of you have been fasting and praying for snow this winter, but you need to stop and cut it out. Um, things like that, right? That's what people are doing. And, and we, as, an, as a church, we called all the Alpine campuses about a month ago or so to fast and pray with us to make a great godly decision on what we wanted to do with the property that we had in Syracuse and the Syracuse campus and the building and all those different things. So it's a very useful tool as long as your heart's in it and as long as you're not just doing it because you think you're spiritual superior over other people and things like that or to show off. And so, but the Pharisees had turned into a, a religious ritual that they thought was required. And they're questioning Jesus and questioning the disciples. They're questioning their sincerity. They're question questioning their piety. They're questioning their, like, really their devotion to God because they weren't following their rules. And so they actually thought that not fasting was an actual sin. And so they really turned some of these rituals, especially fasting, is something that God never intended it to be. And the religious police wanted Jesus to fit into their boxes, into their system, but Jesus kind of refused to do that. And so you can replace fasting with any religious practice, practices that we do today, right? Giving money to the church, giving money to the poor, going to church, volunteering at church, going to the extra worship nights that we have, um, small groups, singing out loud, praying out loud, raising your hands during worship. This is, this, is, this, is, this is what I mean. You can have somebody in a big worship service, right, full of people, and songs are singing, and you're jump, the guy in the front row is jumping up and raising his hand, but he's kind of looking back and making sure everybody sees what he's doing, you know? You guys see that it's not a heart thing sometimes? There's nothing wrong with dancing and lifting your hands and getting on your knees and crying real tears. There's nothing wrong with that. That is a great thing. But if you're just doing it so other people look at you and notice you because you want people to think you're holy, that's the wrong way to do it. 
So it comes from the heart. It doesn't come from pride. So that's the difference. And that's what a lot of Pharisees were doing. It was out of pride, not out of the heart. And so all these things are great things to practice, but judgmental religious people sometimes make it, make it about them. And then they use it as a test for someone else to see how religious they are. And so if you're not careful, you can become kind of this self-righteous person, um, and you can accuse others not living up to your spiritual standards, whatever you think it should be. I'll give you guys examples of this. So you're never going to say these things out loud, but you might think them. So if you've ever thought these things, this is what I mean. You're looking at people around, you're like, why don't those people dress up for church, you know? We had a whole row of uh, young men sitting up here for first service, and they're all wearing hats, you know? Why are, those, why are those young people wearing hats in church? You know, you have these different thoughts, right? Why are these people always late? Why are they always sitting back in church? Why are they always on their phone during the sermon, you know? Why are they letting Brent preach on Sunday? Like, <laughs> you guys are thinking these things, right? But you're not going to say them out loud. And so things like that. How do you know if you're getting a little too judgy? I don't know if any of you have, like, your favorite seat you sit in on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and then you get a little peeved if someone's in your seat when you walk in here. I see people pointing at each other. That's great. <laughs> and so things like that, you know. Maybe you have, you get excited when you walk in and you see your favorite pastor is preaching. But then you get a little less excited when your least favorite pastor is preaching on a Sunday. You know, things like that can be a little judgy, right? You know, you might judge Christian parents on how they're raising their kids. You might judge somebody's faith by their politics. I had a, after I preached this first sermon, I had a friend of mine come up to me and said, man, I love your deep faith, but I really don't like your politics. You know, I was like, thank you? <laughs> so, like, things like that are great. He was kidding. It was fine. But this is exactly kind of thoughts people have to judge others and make themselves really religiously superior, really. So this is exa exactly what the people were doing who were questioning Jesus. They're like, Jesus, come on. Why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? It wasn't really a question they were looking for an answer to. It was more like an accusation. It was more like a critique, right? Why don't you do what you're supposed to do, Jesus? Why aren't you telling your disciples what they should be doing? That's not godly. And so it's very, very judgy and very coming from a place of religious superiority. And so what was Jesus' response to these religious police? He explains why he wasn't going to fit into their box by giving them an example about a wedding feast. And so maybe you've heard this before. Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So like Jesus normally does, he takes a common life experience, and he kind of tells a story or uses it as an illustration. And the groom here represents Jesus, and the wedding guests represent like his followers or his disciples. In the Old Testament, the bridegroom was really used as a metaphor for God. And so again, Jesus is taking this, 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 this thing of talking about himself as divine and divinity. And so in that day, the bride and groom wouldn't just get married and go right off to their honeymoon. Instead, they would actually have a week-long you know, like party for everybody in town. 
And so, you know, here's the bride and groom celebrating for seven or plus days, you know, with everybody in town, their wedding, which seems really fun, but I'd rather go on a honeymoon right afterwards, you know? And so things like that. And the rabbis would actually, you know, declare this joyous celebration, like, let's put away our religious practices for this week and let's celebrate with this couple. So it was a wonderful thing, right? Time of joy and celebration. And so the celebration was more important than observing those religious rituals of the time, which was wonderful. Nobody fasts at a wedding, right? You're not going to go to a wedding and fast. People are going to feed you. I love getting invited to weddings because then I know I'm going to get a great free meal, you know? It's wonderful. I do weddings, and I love doing weddings, which is wonderful. And so what, the, one of my favorite weddings I've ever done was in um, Cannon Beach in Oregon, right, like right along the beach with the big rocks and everything. It's beautiful. They flew me out there. They paid for everything. Um, we went to the rehearsal. Beautiful day. It could rain any time in Oregon, right? Beautiful day for the rehearsal. Beautiful day for the wedding. But the rehearsal dinner was like this super nice, expensive place right on the beach. Freshest seafood you'd ever have in your life. I don't even like seafood, but it was delicious. And then we had the beautiful wedding, beautiful day, and then we went back to the reception, big, beautiful reception, steak dinner, oh my gosh, so freaking good. It was great, you know, one of the favorite weddings I've ever done in my life. And weddings are supposed to be full of joy, they're supposed to be full of celebration, and that's why Jesus is using this illustration, because he's saying that now he is here, he is with his disciples, and it's not a time for fasting either, because Jesus is doing amazing things. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. Demons are being cast out. People are repenting their sin. This is the, a time of celebration when Jesus was here. And he's saying, let's like, this is like a week-long wedding feast, all those years that Jesus was there doing all these miraculous things. And it was like God's presence was there during that time. So it wasn't a time to fasting. So the problem with religious leaders is that Jesus was, they were a lot more concerned with following Jesus and disciples following the laws that they had kind of added than what God was doing for people. And so they were kind of missing the point. And so I feel like today, if we're doing all the spiritual traditions out of habit or formality or whatever, we could be totally missing out on what God is doing for us or for others. And so we've got to put the heart first, not the religious rules first. How many of you have heard um, of the Asbury University revival in Kentucky that happened like a month ago? A bunch of you? Yeah, it was an amazing thing. You had, this is a Christian university in Kentucky. They have their normal service, their normal chapel service during the day. And after the chapel service, people started leaving, but there were a crowd of students that just felt like they just wanted to linger in God's presence. So they started singing more worship songs. They started worshiping God, and it went on. And then more students came in and joined them. And then pretty soon, the whole place was full again. And people are singing and worshiping God, and it was just this beautiful thing. And literally, this lasted for two full weeks, nonstop. And so people were bringing them food and bringing mattresses in, like this whole thing was happening. And people heard about it, and it was on social media. They started putting screens out on the lawn because people from all over the country were coming to see this experience. And it was incredible. They said that they estimated about 50,000 people from across the country came sometime during those two weeks. And so all these amazing things were happening. People were getting saved. It was just incredible. But there was always those people that had some criticism to say about it. And here's the interesting thing. The criticism didn't come from non-believers. It came from other Christians. 
And so there was a lot of things that people said about this, and I'll read you some. They said, revival is more than singing and crying. These Gen Zers are just emotional babies. This is just a spiritual, emotional manipulation, and these students need to go back to class and study their theology. Do you guys see how people, I feel like they just missed the point, and they missed the, the heart that these students had for God. And we can just totally miss it. We can get so caught up in traditions, we totally miss what God has really wants to do. And so things like that, unfortunately, happen all the time. And if we get back to Jesus' wedding feast illustration, typically the wedding guests would leave after a week, the bride and bridegroom, and they'd go to their home and they'd be done, right? But in this illustration, Jesus says, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so this is kind of a foreshadowing of his death on the cross, and it's really, he's saying, yes, there's a time to celebrate with me when I'm here, but when I'm gone, then that's going to be a time for fasting. And so, and that is exactly what happened. And so, but they're not going to fast because it's a ritual. They're not going to fast because it's some part of a religious system or to appear holy, but because their disciples longed, their hearts longed for the presence of Jesus. That's where fasting and mourning comes in. And so Jesus made it very clear that fasting is not about checking a box or a ritual that you're supposed to do. Fasting is actually tied to something that's happening. So when we're celebrating God's goodness and mercy and salvation in your life, it's really not a time to fast, right? That's because fasting is not the right activity to express like praise and gratitude. But if you're mourning loss or if you're mourning sin in your life, that is a great time to fast. That's a wonderful time to fast because it comes from your heart. And so fasting is not this righteous activity that we just do because we're supposed to. It is supposed to be something that is really about your sourness, about your brokenness, about your need. It's really from sincerity. And the same thing applies to every spiritual principle, right? Attend church attendance, Bible reading, prayer, worshiping, serving, all those things, whatever it is. We shouldn't practice these things as a way to measure ourselves or others. It really should just be something that we want to do because we have a heart for God. And honestly, all these things, we, you can do all these things, and you can look really great, and it can be totally fake. Like, these things are easy to fake. And people use these things to trick others to show how this, you know, super spiritual they're not when it really doesn't come from their heart. And so we shouldn't do these things to look righteous or to keep score or check a box or because it's your duty or habit. We definitely shouldn't do them to make ourselves feel better than other people, but we should be doing them to express genuine heart response to God. So religion treats spiritual practices like requirements on a checklist, but Jesus treats them as opportunities to express your heart towards God. So this, this is why we cannot fit Jesus into this religious box, right? Into these just religious systems that only are about rules and rituals because Jesus has, is so much more than that. He's something totally new than that. And so this is what he tells them in the next little illustration. Besides, who would patch old clothing and new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving it in a bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. 
So Jesus gives these two illustrations about patching an old cloth with new cloth, about putting new wine in old wineskins, and there's a very similar idea in both. And so the first illustration, he's talking about making a repair to a worn holy garment, and if you tear, if you, if you have a tear in your clothes, and especially back in those days, if they tore something in their clothes, you know, your clothes are old, rigid, and have already shrunk, right? But if you put a new thing over it, that still has to shrink, and when that's going to happen, it's going to rip right off eventually, right? And make a bigger hole, and, make, and it's not going to be pretty. So things like that, you know, new cloth will shrink when washed for the first time, and it rips off the old clothes, making the tear worse. Um, I had these old jeans that I'd wear all the time that I really loved, probably a little too much, and I uh, was playing with a bunch of kids in our domestic violence shelter out in the playground, and I was on this tire swing, and I keep my phone like right here in my back pocket, and it kind of sticks out, and I got up real fast, and my phone caught on the middle of the tire swing and ripped my whole pocket off my jean. There wasn't a hole in it, thankfully, but it ripped my whole pocket off. So I went home, and I asked my wife to sew a new pocket on. She's like, that's not going to work. She's like, if you sew a new pocket on, it's just going to rip more, and it's probably going to rip off, and probably there will be a hole in your jean, which will be really embarrassing for you. So I'll just buy you a new pair of jeans. <laughs> and so things like that, right? It doesn't work. It just, it just doesn't work. And so, and then he's, the second illustration, he's talking about storing wine that's not fermented yet in old wineskins. And so if you think of an old wineskin, right, it's like the old type of water bottle, you know, flexible and all those different things, you know. And so they were made with like sheep or lamb or goat hair. And what would happen is they would get old and they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't stretch anymore. They were very rigid. And if you put like wine, which is unfermented grape juice into those old wineskins that were old and cracking and all that kind of stuff, the fermented grape juice would you know, it would start to ferment, and then it would start to, like, give off gases, and those gases would make it expand, and then when it expands, it would just burst the old wineskin, and the whole, you'd lose all your wine. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And what's clear from the, both of these illustrations is that there's something new coming that doesn't fit in with the old. And that's what he's trying to say. And Jesus is that Jesus, the Messiah himself, is the new. And the old is the Old Testament, and all the old laws and rules and rituals and even the things that the Pharisees had made up and added to it. And so the Pharisees were devoted to God, but their devotion was to the rules, to the rituals, to the ceremonies. That's what their devotion was to. That's what they focused on. They focused on the inflexible. They focused on the things that they didn't want to change because they liked their traditions and things like that. They wanted to, you know, they were focused on the outward appearance and the public spectacle, making themselves look good, all those different things. They really liked God's law, but they didn't really want to change their heart. And that's because they were in charge and everything worked for them, but it didn't work for Jesus. So religion takes a rigid, legalistic approach to spiritual practices as an end in themselves. While in Christ, these practices express the dynamic relationship we have with God by grace. And really, grace is the key word there because Jesus invites us to this vibrant, dynamic relationship with God, not based on law, but based on grace based on something that we don't deserve, based on something that we can have in the forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus has done for us. All these religious activities are definitely part of our faith in God and our Christianity, but it's not just for keeping the rules. It's a heart thing. 
A relationship with God that's by grace alone is like new wine. It ain't going to fit in the old wineskins. It's like new cloth. It ain't going to fit in the old cloth. It totally is a different thing. It's something completely different and new. And it can't be compatible with all those different things. Fasting and religious activities are, can be about cultivating a new life with Jesus. But it has to be from your heart. And so it can't be skin deep, it can't be practicing all these things as an end in themselves. It's not just a formality. Self-righteousness is an end of itself, but humbly seeking God in his righteousness comes from his grace. So there's a difference. There's definitely a difference. And it's all about motivation and it's all about heart. And so the new is definitely incompatible with the old. There's no way you're going to take a fresh new Oreo cookie right out of the box and dip it in orange juice. Just disgusting, right? It's not, it's not okay, you know? It's not okay to take a beautiful chocolate chip cookie, take all the chocolate chips out, and put raisins in it. Like, that's not okay. I don't know how many like raisins, but Bruce likes raisins. I don't know why. And so, things like that, right? I, I used to work at a 50s restaurant, and we would make fresh, like, shakes and malts and everything, and we would make real banana shakes. Like, we would cut up a real banana and put the banana in the shake, you know, and mix it up with ice cream. Super delicious. Well, I had this idea one night. I like pickles. So I took a long pickle. You see where this is going? I took a long pickle, and I chopped off the pickle, and I put it in the ice cream, and I mixed it up, and I'm like, yeah. And so I started to drink it. I spit it out. It was the most disgusting thing I've ever drank in my life. I don't know. Maybe somebody pregnant would like it. I don't know. But this is bad. You can't mix certain things, right? Certain things don't mix. Like old tradition rules in and of themselves don't mix with the love and the freedom and the heart that we should have for God. They just don't mix. Things like that don't go together. And if we gave the religious leaders a benefit of doubt, you know, maybe they were impressed with Jesus' teaching. Maybe they were like, you know what, let's add some of what Jesus is talking about to our rules so that we're still in charge. Jesus blew that out of the water, and he expressed the folly of that idea, and he was like, no, 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 no. That's like just putting me in a box. That's putting like putting new wine in old wine skins that's going to burst or putting a new patch in an old cloth that's going to tear. He's like, you can't do this. You can't, add rejo- you can't add rejoicing to mourning. You can't add grace to self-righteousness. You can't add humility to pride. And you certainly can't add a transformed heart to all your religious rules and ceremonies and things. The Christian life is not about mixing the old with the new. It's about the fulfillment of the old into the new. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So Jesus took all the Old Testament laws, all the prophecies. He took even the religious, the religious system that they had with the temple sacrifice, where they would sacrifice a lamb. Jesus took all that, and he was like, I'm going to fulfill this. I'm going to be the lamb. I'm going to be the last and final sacrifice, so we don't have to do all those sacrifices anymore. So he fulfilled the Old Testament law and all those systems so that we don't even have to do those things. There's a lot of things that we do still practice, like communion that we're going to do today, which is a beautiful thing to remember what Jesus has done for us, but it has to come from our heart. It has to come from real motivation. And so there are two ways to destroy a thing. You could smash it, or you can let it fulfill itself. And the illustration here is an acorn. If you take an acorn, I could just put it on a table, smash it with a hammer, that's it, it's over. But if you took an acorn and you buried it in the ground, and it destroyed itself but became a beautiful tree, that is the purpose of that acorn. That is the fulfillment of that acorn. And so instead of taking all the law and throwing it away, 
Jesus came to it, and he fulfilled all the promises that God had promised. And this is the beautiful thing about the continuation story that's throughout the entire Bible. And so Jesus fulfilled those things. Jesus' point was really clear today. If you try to put Jesus in this religious system only, and if you try to put him in a box of what you think he should be, you know what? You're going to destroy everything that Jesus came for and who he is. Jesus came to put our heart back into the religion. You can't just have religion by itself. And so I want you guys to ask yourself today, why do you do the things that you do as a Christian? Why do you come to church on Sundays? Is it habit? What does it mean to you? Why do you read your Bible or pray? What, do you, what is your motivation for doing all of these things, right? Start thinking about that. Do you do it out of habit or tradition? Or do you do it just because it's supposed to do? Or do you think that's what you do in Utah? Or do you want to do, have something for your family? Or is it really something that's transforming you and transforming your heart? That's what I want you to think about today. Fasting and other spiritual practices are so valuable. They're so good. But we can't, they're not an end in themselves. They're to point us to Jesus. And we can't use these things as a way to feel elite or to feel spiritual or especially to look down on others. That's what we don't use these things for. We use them as a private thing or even a public thing together to draw all of us closer to Jesus. These things should be an expression of our love to God and our heart's desire for him. So we are going to practice communion today. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this, is the cu this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And so if you guys have those little cups, right, with the wine and the crackers in it, there, if, if you don't have those, just raise your hand. Bill's got a bunch of them. He could bring them around to you. And so this is, this is what we mean by something that is, I think, is a wonderful illustration, a wonderful religious practice, a wonderful way for us to be able to remember what Jesus had done for us. Because he says that just like that cracker, he broke his, his body was broken for us. Just like that wine, his, his blood was poured over us for our forgiveness of our sins. And so this is why we do it. We do it so that our heart and our mind and our soul can remember the amazing thing that Jesus had done for us. So I'm going to pray and then as the worship band sings their last song, you can take that at any time. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you have come to give us a relationship, God. God, we thank you that we have your word. Lord, we thank you that we have things like communion and things like fasting. And we thank you for this building and for this group of believers. We thank you for this body of Christ. We thank you that we can have fellowship with one another and learn from one another. We thank you for all those things, God. But Lord, I pray that you would just help us to use those things in order to become closer to you and closer to one another. Lord, we thank you so much that your body was broken for us, for us that your body and your blood was poured out for us, God. And we thank you for forgiveness of sins. And we thank you that through grace, all this is possible. In Jesus' name, amen.